Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. Life is hard. Sometimes it seems like survival is the greatest thing we can hope for. Somewhere along the way, we've lost sight of who or what we could become. God has something better in mind. He created us for a purpose, a God-ordained destiny that makes a difference. Because of this, we believe that we can change, we can grow, and we can reach a potential we have yet to realize. Join us for Aspire, a four-part series designed to reignite our hopes and dreams for tomorrow. All right, everybody, welcome to Grace Life. How are you guys doing? Good, all right, it's good to see you guys. A couple of things before we get into the message. Uh, I, want, I want to help connect some dots on what we do here. Sometimes when things are going on at a church and, and you look around at the schedule and you think, man, they've got just stuff. Stuff is happening. I, I bet the staff gets paid by the number of events on the calendar or, or something like that. And, and I want you to know that is uh, the furthest thing from the truth. We don't get paid by doing things. So when we do things, it's for a reason. And the things we do give God an opportunity to touch our lives. So I want to connect two dots of of things. One that we just did and one why it matters to what we're about to do. So you, you just saw the announcement that says on Wednesday we're having our life group launch party. That means we're starting our life groups. That's not because you're bored and have too much time with your life. It's because life groups touch the very needs of our lives, and and that's how God can meet those needs and help us grow. So, for instance, last week we were doing our week of prayer and fasting, and if you were here last Sunday, we asked everybody to fill out one of these prayer cards, and we prayed for you many times all throughout the week. And, and so as I was reading some of these cards, I noticed, okay, it's, it's great that we're coming together and we're praying and we're asking God to do something, but quite often God does something through your actions as well. And so I'm looking at these cards going, man, We've got a life group that will help this person. And then I'd go to the next card and go, we've got a life group that would help this person. Now, look, we got hundreds of cards. The stack is about that high. So everybody say, thank you, Jimmy, for not reading all those. There you go, all right? But I do want to read a few. I want you to see. Here's what I'm talking about. So this one says, pray that I will become a man of God. Okay. It's called a men's group. Get into a men's group where men get together and talk about how to be a man of God. And then he also said he wants to have a godly marriage. Well, we've got... Marriage groups, get into a marriage group. Maybe you can do both of them. There you go. This one says, help me be a better husband. Okay, find that guy and follow him. Okay, and go join a men's group, and uh, then you guys are good to go. All right, so right here, this one says, depression and anxiety are crushing me. Okay, we've got life groups for that. My wife and I lead one group in particular I'd like to invite you to. It's called Grow Spirit Life. It's about once God moves in, once God lives inside of us, it should make a difference in our life. This one says loneliness. Doesn't matter what the topic is, just get into a group. You're never going to make friends looking at me on Sunday morning without knowing the people beside you. Just get into a group, find a group on anything. This one says financial peace. Guess what? We've got a group for that. Want to guess what it's called? Financial peace. There you go. This one says financial freedom. Follow that person. Okay, this one says generational curse is broken. Uh, Once again, my life group, let me invite you to that. This one says, pray for my marriage. Find a marriage group. This one says, marriage. Go with those people to the marriage group. This one says, financial freedom and inner peace. Well, if your inner peace is gone because of your finances, go to the finance group, right? And uh, if not, then come to my life group about inner peace. There you go, marriage. Figure it. Y'all see the theme here, how this is kind of going? Deliverance from impure thoughts and pornography. We've got a group called Every Man's Battle. So look, we're not doing life groups because we're bored or trying to add something to your life. We're trying to meet the needs that we have as people. So I want to encourage you. Got a lot going on. Wednesday night is the life group launch. And then 
Friday and Saturday, we're doing the marriage conference. You got one of these on the way in, and this is very simple. We want the world to look at our marriages and be jealous. We want them to say, how did you do it? And then we can say, Jesus, because my spouse and I are as screwed up as your spouse and you, because we're all humans. We're all messing this thing up. It's only Jesus has the answer to how to have a good marriage, and that's when you get to tell them that. So Friday night, Saturday, so let me put it all on the screen, review for you. Wednesday night, we'll be here, free dinner. Uh, get, come, come get a life group. Uh, Friday night and Saturday, free child care, not free dinner, and we'll have a marriage conference and hope to see you then. So that is for anybody who is married, good or bad, expects to be married, teenagers who dream of being married, whatever it is. Whew, there you go. That was a lot. Oh, and last thing, don't forget, if you were here last week, we unveiled the gracelife.church app. Go check it out in your app store because then, yeah, that was, that was weak, but uh, everything, everything that you need from Grace Life is now everywhere you go. So that's, uh, that was the announcement. Lots of stuff going on. All right, good. So here we go as we get started. We're in the final part of a series we've been doing called Aspire and a uh, very simple theme here. God isn't done with you. God isn't done with his plans for you. And you have yet to see the best that God has for you. Now, what I just said, only some of you agree with, and some of you moderate degrees of passion with it, right? The enemy loves for us to think that what I just said is not true. The enemy loves for us to believe we are too old, that ship has sailed, we've made too many mistakes, we have sinned too much, and the opportunity is off the table. But listen, I'm here to tell you, here's what scripture is is more reflective of and, and more true to saying is this, if you are still breathing and you're still on planet earth, God isn't done. God isn't done. And so there is a reason for us to aspire to greater things in our lives, and the enemy would love to tear us down, but we have been trying to get our eyes on what God has for us. And so we had this question a little while ago in our creative team as we were planning this series. We sat around, and I, and I said this. I said, here's what I want this series to be about. If a grandfather were on his deathbed talking to his grandchildren, what would be his greatest aspirations for them? What would he say to them? Because we had already had some topics on the whiteboard that would have been good things for you to aspire to, but, but they didn't make that list once we started thinking about that. And so as I started thinking, as, as when I'm older and I'm talking to my grandchildren, what do I want for them? Well, the first thing we talked about was aspire to leave a legacy. I would want to see my grandchildren live a life that outlives them, something that has impact after they're gone. I would want to look at my grandkids and say, look, you're young, let's, let's do this right. Aspire to leave a legacy with your life. The second thing that I would want for my grandchildren is that they would seek God all of their days with all of their life. And so we, last week, right before the week of prayer and fasting, talked about aspire to seek God. And so is the suspense killing everybody? What could be the third thing to make this list? What could be that good? Anybody with me? Drum roll? No? Aspire to spiritual maturity. Aspire to spiritual Here's the thing. I would want my grandchildren to become more like God every day of their lives. Aspire to spiritual maturity. And I'm going to set it within kind of a context of what I see as a difference in the world sometimes or difference in the church and just the way people view maybe me from other people. So for instance, I'm a pastor and uh, it, it turns out that I think I get watched because I'm a pastor. Like people look at me, thank you for the head nod, somebody's with me on this. Like I will hear people come in and go, hey pastor, I saw you the other day. Is there an implication behind that? 
what did you see me doing? I'm pretty sure it was okay. Where, I mean, what do you, where are we going with that? Even people look at a pastor's life and say things like, oh, I saw you go through that stoplight. It turned red, right? Okay, I admit it. I'm an impatient person, but I still love Jesus, okay? But people, they think that somehow pastors and the life they live is a little bit different from everybody else, that it's almost like there's a different standard. There's a different definition of what God wants from a pastor from what he wants from every other person who says they're one of his children, right? And so let me give you an example. And in order to do this, don't just sit there. You literally mentally have to go through this with me. Answer the question in your mind. Okay, ready? All right, question number one. If a non-believer won $10 million, so if a non-Christian wins $10 million in the lottery, what do you expect? Okay, you probably expect them to buy a really big, awesome house, right? I mean, there's a TV show called Dream Home, Lottery Winner Dream Home, something like that. I might have got the words backwards. So we expect people to automatically go out and buy the biggest castle that they can get for $10 million. They might even put some cool new rides in the garage. That's the, anybody surprised by that? No, okay. How about this one, number two? What if a Christian wins $10 million in the lottery? What do you expect? Yeah, they're gonna tie. Okay, so let me get this straight. The, the Christian is going to win $10 million, and they need to give $1 million to the church, but then they're still going to have $9 million to go and play with, except for what the taxes take on them. So, you know, we expect them also to get a pretty nice house, like, you know, new house and new place set for the kids in the backyard, new minivan, and they might even get a beach house. And we're going to say... Look at how God has blessed his children. Isn't that cool how God has blessed them? Okay, here we go. Question number three. Now, if you're going to be honest with yourself, what do you expect if the pastor wins? You already see where I'm going. What do you expect if the pastor wins $10 million in the lottery? Give it all away. Exactly. That's exactly. And they give it all to the church. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, where's this double standard coming from? First of all, okay, so he would have to tithe because he teaches it and fusses at you for it all the time, so you know. Matter of fact, first thing to do is, did the pastor tithe? I mean, we want to know if he tithes. But then second of all, you're going to think to yourself, that building he's been talking about all the time, I expect him just to pay for that thing, $4 million out the window. We're already down to five. And so then we start thinking, he does not need a big fancy house. That would be a bad example for everybody else. Okay, he can pay his off he can pay it off he can get out of debt he can stay in a nice modest home and a beach house oh don't he dare i mean come on i mean it, there is a double standard here and if you think i'm making this up i'm going to tell you about a young lady i took on about two dates when i was in high school her name was brantley and i'm going to tell you why brantley and i didn't make it to about date number three because i already knew god had called me to be a pastor and so on our second date we got into this conversation that god had called me to be a pastor hence no third date anybody know what i'm talking about because she immediately looked at me and said, oh, I could never be a pastor's wife. What, what do you mean? You're a Christian. But yeah, but I couldn't be a pastor's wife because I, I want to wear some stuff pastor's wives can't wear. <laughs> Wait a minute. You mean that there are things Christians can wear, but pastors and pastor's wives can't wear? What store is that? <laughs> I mean, what? Are you guys with me? Double standard. So here's the real question of the day. Is there a difference before God, is there a difference in the Bible between what God expects of Christian leaders and what God expects of Christians? Is there a difference between the way you expect a pastor to live and act versus the way you expect a Christian to live and act? 
And I know that that's a complicated question, so I'll go ahead and give you the disclaimer. Yes, we expect leaders in any situation to be the ones who can be an example. We expect the leaders to be the one who exemplify the values of whatever it is they are leading. We expect the leaders to be the one who are mature, have had some victories. So I want to say it this way. We expect our leaders to be further down the road, but I want to push back and say, but they should be on the same road. The same road. Too often we get the idea, there's a road over there for pastors and those weird Christians who get up and go to prayer at 6.30 in the morning every day for an entire week and like give up some of their food or Facebook or something. Yeah, that's the weird road. Over here is the, I'm going to heaven happy road. (laughs) I mean, I like God, but I like cheeseburgers. Why give them up for a week? I mean, I'm going to heaven, but this road's got a little more grace. This is the Christian road and this is the freaky Christian road. And it's the way that people seem to think about this whole idea. So look, here's what I want to show you. I want to show you a passage in the Bible where I don't think that there should be as much separation between us. And actually, the entire series came out of this. The entire series came out of this. About a year ago, I was going through my one-year Bible reading. I'm just you know, doing my thing. And, and I come across this passage I've read many times. And I wrote in my journal a question as I was reading this. And, and the question was, why don't more Christians aspire to this? Why don't more Christians aspire to this? Why doesn't every man, why doesn't every woman, why don't even teenagers, when they read this, aspire to this? And and I'm going to go ahead and tell you the reason some of you would push back is because this particular passage starts out by saying, look, if you want to be a pastor or an elder, here's what your life should look like. But immediately we kind of Tune that out. So if you've got your Bibles with me, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't, it's going to be on the screen right behind my head. And and, uh, so here we go, starting, uh, where are my notes? I'm all lost here. Here we go. 1 Timothy 3 starts like this. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so we immediately stop reading because of the word overseer. And the Greek behind it actually means three different things for us. It could mean pastor. It could mean elder. But it also simply means shepherd. You know, Jesus is called the great shepherd. The Bible refers to us as a flock. And so it's saying, look, whoever wants to be one of the leader of the flock, if you want to be an overseer, you desire a noble task. Well, here's what happens to us. We do one of two things. Number one, you're reading through your Bible on your your Bible reading guide. And, you, you know, sometimes you get behind. You know what I'm talking about? You get behind a day or two. Well, if you, you know anything about where this is in the New Testament, I mean, this is pretty far in the year. You're, you might be a couple of days behind at least. And so the minute that you get to this and it says, if anyone desires to be an overseer and you go, yep, not me. Woo, catch up day. I get to turn the page. I just, man, I like caught up already. This is cool. Or the second thing that happens is when you go, if anyone desires to be an overseer, you go, huh, well, let me just see if Jimmy measures up. (laughs) And that's how we read it. But very few of us read it and say, what does this mean to me? And here's what's interesting about this passage. Commentators, you know, all those scholars who get all the PhDs and study in Bible and everything, and they make comments about the, the original language and all that kind of stuff. All right, these guys actually fuss at Paul. Paul was the guy who actually penned it. And, and they fuss at Paul saying, you missed it, man. This list is generic. This list, I don't even see why you would write a list like this for pastors. There's really nothing here that you could expect of a pastor. We shouldn't expect of every other Christian. And I say, exactly. That is my point. 
And so before we go any further today, I have a real question for you, not a rhetorical question, a real question. Are you with me that there's only one goal for spiritual maturity? Are you with me? There is not a road for me and a road for you. Okay, I got one person. We're going to try this again because here's what you need to understand. The rest of what I have to say is useless if you're not with me at the beginning. Okay, this is like a cruise ship. Either get on it or you're missing it. Okay, you're going to miss the boat. It's about to leave. All right, so do you agree there is one standard of spiritual maturity before God? Yes. Okay, so as we're reading this, what I want you to do is to think to yourself, man, where am I? In comparison with this, how am I doing in this area? Because one of the biggest mistakes that I see in our lives, one of the biggest victories for the enemy is when we say this sentence. I'm just a Christian. I'm not the pastor, not an elder. I I don't preach sermons. I don't know what you people expect of me. I am just a Christian. And the enemy loves when that becomes our identity. I, I, just, just get off my back, man. I do as much as I can do. I throw a little bit of money at the youth every now and then. I wear a blue T-shirt and volunteer on a team on occasion. I, I do a little because I'm just a Christian, and isn't that enough? The enemy wants us to think that somehow mediocrity is God's idea, but it is not God's idea. I think that every one of us should have the exact same goal. So the second thing that he goes on to say is, well, it's a noble task. All right, so here you go. Let's talk about it. Therefore, an overseer should be, must be above reproach. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we're going to fly through this pretty quickly because there's nothing in this list that is rocket science. You could, you could go home and just read it yourself right now. If you're with me on this point, that's really my point. Because this is, this is pretty self-explanatory, but I'm, I'm still going to walk us through this, but it's going to be quick here. What does this mean? simply means no one should have a legitimate, true accusation against you. No one should be able to come up to you and look at you and go, you're a fraud. What are you doing sitting here like acting like a Christian? I just saw you rob a bank at lunch. You know, I mean, there shouldn't be a legitimate accusation. Now, I need to pause here and make sure no one is getting beat up by the devil at this point. Because here's the deal. None of us are perfect. We are all on the road. No one goes from, oh my gosh, I need Jesus, to the end of the road in one second. No one does. That's your lifetime journey. And if you're at the end of the road, guess what? You're at the end of the road. Welcome to heaven, okay? So if you're still here with us having this conversation, don't beat yourself up that you're somewhere along the road. Do not beat yourself up that there are things that are not perfect in your life as long as tomorrow you are one step further than you were today, okay? So don't let the enemy beat you up on that idea there. And so when someone does come to you and has a true accusation, hey, I, I, I saw you such and such. That's where you can look at them and go, you know what, you're right. That's an area of my life I'm working. Why don't you pray with me? And that's okay. Does that make sense? He goes on to say this. He should also be the husband of one wife. And this could be a deep debate, huge debate. We're not going to get into today. There's a lot of argument back and forth. What does this mean about people who have been married before? What does this mean about people whose spouse has died? What, what does this mean? I'm not getting into that debate because I only want to talk about the one, the one thing that everybody agrees on. Here's the one thing everybody agrees on. At the very least, this phrase means to be faithful to your spouse. At the very least. All right, everybody with that one? So we're going to agree on that. If everybody understands this means that at the very least you should be faithful with your spouse, a bunch of you just went, whew, move on, Jimmy, I got it. Except I want to hurt your feelings maybe. 
step on your toes or something here because we've got a different understanding. We've got the idea, well, I'm faithful to my spouse if, if I haven't committed adultery, right? I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to because we live in a world where our friends would give us this advice. It's okay to look as long as you don't touch. And we think that window shopping applies not only to materialism and a trip to the mall, but it also applies to relationships. That's what the world seems to think. And some of that creeps into the church, and we think that it's okay to kind of mentally go someplace as long as we don't physically go someplace. But here's the problem with that. Jesus disagreed. Does anybody know what he said about this? He said, look, if you even look in your heart with desire, you've already committed adultery. It's already, it's already gone. And so if we're going to say, how can I be more spiritually mature? The answer here is not just to avoid a physical act, but to actually start and say things like this. Do you have a problem with second glances? Are you one of those people that when someone walks by, you take another look? Come on, anybody with me? You're at the gym, you're working out, and you watch people. I'm telling you what, there are ladies who walk through the gym, and it is like their pants have a magnet to men's eyes. And I'll watch all of these men just go, just follow her across the room. And I'm thinking, dude, you're married. That wasn't your wife. And somehow everybody just keeps watching, just keeps watching. I try to walk through the gym like this. Actually, your people think I'm rude all the time. They're like, dude, I was, yes, I saw you in the gym the other day. You didn't even say hello to me. It's because I wasn't paying attention to anything above the floor. You know? I mean, that's, that's how you do this thing, right? Okay? How about pornography? I mean, I'm sorry. I had to, had to touch on this. But, you know, all too often we're like, well, you know, this is okay. Or at least, you know, my spouse knows and they don't really care. It's not that big a deal. It is a big deal because it's going on up here with someone else, right? How about flirting? You know, you just go out for lunch and you just, you just start flirting with either the waitress or the waiter and, and you think maybe that's or online communications, a little extra texting here and a, uh, whatever that is. Or How about romance novels? You know, romance novels, I have yet to this day to meet one person, one person who when they read a romance novel can tell me this because okay, we any, you, if any book you read, any TV show you watch, you always place yourself inside of it, right? So as you're reading this romance novel, you become one of the characters, and no one ever to this day has said, yes, my spouse is the other character. Because you probably aren't reading those if that's where you are with your spouse. So as, as Jesus pushes back on us and says, all right, if you're going to be spiritually mature, it's not just about an act, it's about where goes your mind. He goes on to say, be sober-minded. Sober-minded simply means let's be self-aware, let's be realistic, let's be objective, let's be grounded, let's be level-headed, let's be a wise decision-maker, let's be informed. Let's be someone who is easy to correct because you have a perspective of truth and wisdom. You're not easily deceived, and you don't freak out when everybody else is freaking out. You know, right all the time, oh my gosh, the world's coming to an end. Have you seen the stock market? Have you seen the presidential election? I mean, have you, ah! And somebody needs to go, Jesus is on his throne. Let's just stop and ask God what he's doing. And, and, and it's also really hard to tell them you've got a great deal on some lakefront, lakefront property in like Tennessee or, or oceanfront property in Tennessee, you know? I mean, you know those people like, hey man, hey, I just, this, this quick, get rich, quick scheme, whatever. I can talk, I promise. And, and uh, those kind of things. Sober-minded, reality. If I want to get ahead, I'm going to need to work hard. I'm going to need to save. I'm going to apply God's principles. This is how life works. Next one is self-controlled. Proverbs says it better than anything. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. If you're a city with no walls, back at the time this was written, it meant that gangs of robbers and thieves could just come in, take what they wanted and leave. Nobody could stop them. There was no defense. And your life is the same way. 
If you've got no walls and borders in the natural realm, then, then spiritual attack is very easy to come. Because here's what's crazy. A spiritual attack is often stopped by the simplest natural boundaries of self-control. Right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, if you've got some software on your computer, you just can't do that. You just can't. No matter how bad the temptation gets, if you've got some stuff blocked, it's not going to work if your wife is the only one with the password. Sometimes the wall for a great spiritual battle is a simple thing in the natural realm. So ask yourself, does your life reflect self-control? Does your life reflect self-control? Is that... I'm not getting a whole lot of people wanting to shout out and go, yes, well, the truth is because we know we're not a people known for that. Americans are not known for self-control. Think about this. Does your eating reflect self-control? Does your spending reflect self-control? Does your TV watching reflect self I'm going to get everybody at some point here. Just we'll go down the list. Does your telephone addiction reflect like Candy Crush. What level are you on Candy Crush? I picked on Candy Crush and I've learned something every service. First service I say, man, if you're like on level 40, you might have a little bit of a self-control issue. Somebody came to me after that and said, dude, I'm on 109. <laughs> so second service, I talked about how there's more than 100. Lady came to me after the second service and she showed me her phone, 659, level 659. Does your life reflect self-control? She tried to claim in her defense it took her many years to get there. I don't know. That's up to you, right? <laughs> Respectable. This is it. simple. Your life brings you honor from the people who know you. The people who know you. When they look at all the other things, they go, man, you've got a life worthy to be honored. Hospitable. Means you have a giving spirit, you open your life, you open your home, you share with people that you are friendly. That you, It doesn't mean you're extroverted. There are introverts that can still be hospitable. There's a way that we do that. Able to teach. Now, this is the number one, the one thing on the list that the commentators finally give Paul credit for. They say, finally, Paul, finally, you put something on the list that is a specific gift for a leader that only leaders can do. And I disagree and agree. Here's what I mean by that. Not everybody has the specific gift of being able to teach to hundreds and thousands or being comfortable with that and being good at communicating on stage. Not everybody has that gift. So I agree. Not everybody should do that. But I disagree when they say this isn't for everyone. I believe everyone should be able to teach. I believe everyone should be able to sit down with one other person. The Bible tells us to go and make disciples. Everyone should be able to sit down with somebody and say, look, I see what you're going through. And let me tell you how I got through that. That's it. That's teaching. One-on-one. -on -one. You don't even have to have an outline. You don't have to give a quiz. You don't have to give a grade. That's not what teaching always is. It is just showing people how you got a victory where you got one. The next one, not a drunkard. Now, here's what is really interesting when you think about it. He already said you need self-control. So in all honesty, hasn't he sort of covered this one? Why would he bring up specifically the need for drinking? And the truth is we may never know why he brought it up. I mean, first of all, there's the obvious. It's not good when the pastor looks like he's at a really bad frat party. You know, it's not good when the church leaders end up in the front page of the newspaper with a picture they don't remember taking. Yeah, that's not good. Okay, that's kind of obvious. But here's something else to maybe consider. Drunkenness is an escape mechanism. You know, the reason people go to that extent to get drunk, not just to have a drink, is because they want to forget. 
They want to forget what they're going through, where they've been. And, and if Paul were writing this list today, I think he would actually add something besides don't be a drunkard. He would say don't be an addict, don't get high, and stop binge-watching. Because binge-watching is typically, I've had a miserable week, give me a quart of ice cream, close the blinds, and nobody call me for three days. I need to escape what my boss has said to me. I need to escape how I feel about myself. I need to escape how my marriage is. I need to just escape. I need to get away from my reality. And we put so many things on that list, and alcohol is only one of them. And the reason it makes the list is this. Why do we want to escape our reality? Is that something to be modeled? If there's something in your life if there's something that's at a point where all you want to do is forget it and deny it and pretend it's not there, that's the very thing you need to invite Jesus into your life to fix. And if we're going to aspire to spiritual maturity, we're going to look at that thing and say, I'm going to stop running from it and pretending it's not there. I'm going to deal with it. And so if escaping your reality is an answer, it makes the list for something we need to aspire to in spiritual maturity. The next one, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, pretty straightforward. Uh, not much to say there, except we should probably bring up the not quarrelsome every November, about every four years. How about this one? Not a lover of money. Okay, if you're not mad at me yet, you're about to be. Okay, so here you go. Do you give? Do you tithe? You know what tithing is? Giving God the first 10% of everything he's given to you. So uh, let's ask a question. If you don't tithe, is it because God isn't worth it? No, oh, no, seriously, do this with me. You are his boss, okay, cool. And God is going to get a Christmas bonus. And you're going to sit down and think about how has he done this year? Like job performance, duh, what does he deserve? I mean, the sun still comes up. Well, that's because he keeps the world going round, right? You know, the world hasn't just like poof imploded and turned to dust. You know, he kind of keeps it all together. And every now and then he turns off the heat. You know, it gets cold for like three or four months at a time, you know. But he, he, we will work on that. We'll ask for him to keep the heat on all year long for all you people that wish you lived in Florida. You know, whatever it is. But in general, basically, does God measure up to like, could, does he deserve like 10%? I mean, has he been that good at his job? Okay, I'm glad a couple of you are with me here. You know, matter of fact, think about this. What if we only rated him on being your provider? Anybody here wake up under a bridge? Anybody here going without food? Because, you know, no, God has blessed us. So as, as my provider, is he worth 10%? And the answer is pretty simple. Yeah. I mean, I think we could all agree God's worth 10%. He, he's worth 10%. He's probably worth 20. He's probably worth 50. He's probably worth 100. He's worth more than I could give him. He's worth 10%. Okay, here's the problem for us. If he's worth 10% and we don't give it to him, there's only one reason left, and that's because we love it and what it can buy more than we love him. And before y'all throw anything at me, we'll just move right along. It says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The second sentence explained the first, so you don't really need me to preach it. It's a very simple biblical concept that says, be faithful with a little and you'll be given more. If you're not going to take care of a little, why would God give you more? If you can't lead your two children to, to teach them how to pray and talk to Jesus, then why would he give you 200? And, and here's what I think is important is for us to, to take this out of the box a little bit. Sometimes we're like, well, I'm single, I'm good. Well, you know, I don't want to lead a church, so I'm good. No, 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 let's look at it in other contexts because we all have other contexts. Maybe you're, maybe you're in high school, teenagers, let's talk to the teenagers for a minute, and you're saying, man, I would love to be student body president, or I would love to be captain of the football team. And, and so you're praying, God, please make me captain of the football team. 
And God is saying, well, you know, I put you with the, the football team and in the locker room. You never mentioned me. When they're making horrible jokes, you're laughing right along with them. Why would I make you in charge of them when you never talk about me? Why would I give you more influence when you didn't use the influence you had? Adults, maybe you've got a job and you're like, man, I hope I get this promotion. I want to be in charge at work, at, you know, the corner office, big paycheck. This would be awesome. God, please promote me. Please give me this new job. And God looks at you and says, I put you in a cubicle with two other people. And they hate your guts. And you never talk about me, which in this case is actually good because they hate your guts. Why would I put you in charge of the whole company so they can all hate your guts? So you could never, I mean, seriously, why would I do that? Be faithful with a little so you can be given more. If you're a horrible teacher that does not show what it's like to be a Christian, why would God make you the principal? It's a, it's a principle we can apply all across our lives. We've got lots of soldiers. You want to be promoted? Well, then do something with what God's given you right now, right where you are. He goes on to say he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. And, and this is a simple issue, pride. Pride has been a part of our human struggle since the beginning, and it always will be until Jesus comes back. I want you to think about what we see in the sports world every single year, every single sport, doesn't matter which one. Some incredible freshman is coming out of high school and they are so talented that they get to start as a freshman while some other pretty good senior is sitting the bench. Now, you don't think that person is going to have to struggle with pride? Of course they are. You don't think they're set up for failure? Of course they are. And so God says, look, let's not set ourselves up for failure. Let's not put ourselves in a place where you've only been following Jesus for two weeks and suddenly we've decided you get to be the pastor. Fire the last guy. You get to be one of the elders. I mean, no. Look, so here's what Paul is saying. It would be great for you to model the Christian life. It would be great for you to be mature. It would be great for you to be so far along the road you're walking beside the pastor and that would be awesome as an example. Just be patient for a title. Just be patient for someone to give you a job description that says you're the leader. Just be patient. Give God time to work so that pride has no opportunity. And he closes it out with this right here because that is all for your own protection, by the way. Last thing he says is, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. There is no one, no one in human history who is more well thought of by an outsider than Jesus. 2,000 years later, people who hate his followers, people who can't stand his book, still love him. And they think he's awesome. And they say he's a great teacher and a great mentor. Why? One of the key reasons is because he was awesome with outsiders. He, was, he treated them so kindly. Look, nothing is ever going to tell who you are as much as the way you treat those who are not in your club. Tell you a little story. When I, I got my first job, so my wife and I had just gotten married. I was 24 years old. We, we moved back to the States, and I got a teaching job. They hired me to be the assistant band director. And, uh, you know, band starts during the summer. There's all these band rehearsals always going on all summer long. So they were already doing their thing. And they said, well, when you show up tomorrow, just go over to the high school, walk out on the football field, introduce yourself to the band director. And I'm gonna, I hope he doesn't listen to our, our podcast. Because I'm going to tell you, he was one of the nastiest men I've ever met in my life. Because I walk out there on the field, and, and, and as I'm walking up to it, first of all, you need to know this detail. I, I'm 5'5 five five already, and, and I look like I was 12 when I was 24, and so I look like a kid. Uh, you know, anyway, so I'm, I'm walking out on the field, and I just hear him screaming, 
What is your problem? What's wrong with all you people? You're just here, miserable, you know, whatever. I'm going to die in early grave trying to teach you. I mean, I mean, it was just miserable, just shouting and yelling and just slamming clipboards and everything else, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, he's having a really bad day. <laughs> and so I walk up to him, and he turns to me and goes, what do you want? No lie. And I'm like, uh, I, I'm your new assistant band director. Oh, it is so good to meet you. Welcome. Hey, right after rehearsal, why don't we go to lunch? There's a place down the street that's got the best coconut cream pie. Not kidding you. Coconut cream pie. He almost bit my head off. How am I going to eat coconut cream pie at this point? Seriously, 20 years later, this is what this man is thinking. Completely different attitude towards someone on the inside versus someone on the outside. If people in the world, if people you work with, if your next door neighbor do not think you model Jesus, then we need to work toward that. Simple point here. The Bible repeatedly throughout the New Testament confronts believers. And, and it uses this example even twice saying, you're still not ready for solid food. You're still drinking milk. You're supposed to grow up. So what's that? You're supposed to grow up. And so here's, I mean, how silly would it be to look at a 20-year-old man drinking out of a baby bottle? Okay, but think about us in the church. We become believers, but then What? Then what? What do we do? What do we wake up and deal with every single day? So look, if, you're, if you've got a question right now, like, well, what do I do with this? Great, Jimmy, thank you. What, what do I do with this? Look, I, I, if you don't have a better idea, let me give you one. Get a sheet of paper and list everything we talked about right down the left-hand side. You just go straight down it, and then you go back and rate yourself every single one of them from 1 to 10. And then take the lowest number and work on it this week. Next week, do it again. Take the lowest number and work on it that week. Do it again the next week and the next week and the next week. Because, see, here's the question that I have for all of us. What are you confronting in your soul and your lifestyle to become more like God? What are you confronting in your soul and your lifestyle to become more like God? And that already shows a lot of the problem that we can't answer the question. Because many of us don't think that confronting our soul or our lifestyle is a daily thing. Well, maybe if I run into a really big sin problem and rob a bank, I'll sit down and confront myself on stealing. No, no, no. If we're becoming more like God, if we are followers of Jesus, then we should be able to get together in small groups, life groups. And someone should be able to go around the circle just saying, hey, what are you confronting in your soul or lifestyle this week? And the answer should be immediate. Because any day of your life that you do not wake up and say, man, how can I be more like God today than yesterday? Then you're just wasting a day. You will be nothing but a mere human today who eats some food, goes to work, gets some money, and that is your existence for that day. That's not what God has called us to. He's called us every single day to become more like Him. And I'm going to close by proving it to you with one, one passage. This is out of 2 Corinthians 3. This says that we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord. When we see the glory of the Lord, when we experience Him, when we are touched by Him, when we read His Word and we're inspired by Him, when we've prayed and seen something answered in our lives, when we behold the glory of the Lord, what should happen? We're being transformed into the same image. What? Yeah. If we do this long enough, we eventually look like him that is the goal that is what he expects it doesn't say that's just for pastors that's just for elders no it's for all of us for every single one of us every single one of us to aspire to become more like him 
to aspire to make a difference in this world. And so I want us to be a church. I'm going to challenge us to be a church that will aspire to spiritual maturity. Do you accept the challenge? Awesome. For those of you that are here today, and uh, the biggest issue for you is you've never begun, begun, began journey. Sorry, South Carolina education. You've never began the journey that we're talking about. You've never reached that point where where you're saying, I'm not a follower of God. I don't have to be more like him. Somebody dragged me to church. I'm not even sure I believe all of this. And you're at a place where you're saying, I need, I need to do something with, with the fact that Jesus died for me. I need to recognize he died for me. And if he did, then that means I'm going to live for him. And I need to do something about that truth. If you've never done something about that truth, I want to help you do it right now. You don't have to stand up or do anything weird. It's a simple conversation with him. If you would all pray with me, say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now I want to live for you. I pray that you will make me more like you every day of my life. I thank you for your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness. And my simple prayer today is that you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.